you know, after we sing songs like that, I'm compelled to ask the question, do we mean this? Is it true in your life that nothing on earth compares with the Lord? That you desire nothing on earth? That he is first and foremost far away more important and more precious to you than anything else this world can offer? As we know, this world is deceptive. This world is controlled by evil forces. But we know that the evil forces are on a short leash. And the Lord is in charge, in control. And so it really is by faith, isn't it? Are we going to worship the true and living God? Or are we going to worship the lesser gods? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us that what we just sang was true in our own hearts. Lord, you see it. You see our hearts. You know what's there. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that whatever tweaking needs to be done, the Holy Spirit, you'll reveal to us what needs to happen, what areas we need to repent from, and how we need to put our eyes fixed upon you and upon you alone. Lord, we live in, in very dire times, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would refresh us and renew us, that there would be nothing in our eyes other than your glory. And so we're going to thank you for this time right now. We ask God that as we open up your word, we ask God that you would help us and help us have our hearts opened to hear what you have to tell us and then apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin this morning by stating the obvious. Though it is Sunday and we've come together to worship the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, it is also October 31st. And what is October 31st? Halloween, yeah, that's what we all think, isn't it? And we're going to talk about that very thing today. We are reminded that there is a real spiritual clash. Rather than seeing Halloween, though, as the culture sees it, through a distorted lens of deception, we need to see it from the truth. And I'm going to attempt to have us do that today. I've titled the message by highlighting Three things about Sunday, which just happens to fall on October 31st. The bad, the good, and the glorious. And you might be thinking, how can today be glorious in relation to Halloween? Well, stay with me because there is a glorious aspect to this that dispels the darkness that this day brings. Halloween with its original intent is not a harmless thing. On this day, the world celebrates death. Now, this is obvious. And all we have to do is look around to those you know, lawn ornaments and, and the people that have really gone all out and decorated their houses for Halloween, getting ready for the little kiddo trick-or-treaters, right? And some say that the most dangerous thing about Halloween is the candy. And, you know, I, I think about the dentist. You know, they, they're probably thinking, boy, this is a great thing in my life. You know, all these cavities they get to fill. Yeah. But for us as Christians, we worship the one who conquered death by our Lord's resurrection from the dead. The Lord Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified, the ruler of this world, in Heiser's words, the Lord of the dead has no claim on me. But Jesus knew it would take his own death to make this statement true. 
See, one cannot conquer death through resurrection unless one dies first. This is indeed glorious news, not only because Jesus won the victory over death, but what it means for all of us as his followers, if we're followers of Christ. We're going to go through some historical touch points about Halloween and how the church has intersected it and tried to redeem it. And I think in some measure, we have kind of redeemed it in our culture. I think of productions like Liberty University's Scaremare, where people are brought up close and personal, and they are asked the question, they're challenged with the question, what is going to happen to you when you die? Others throw in gospel tracts with the Halloween treats when costume kids come to the door, or the harvest festivals, which turn the focus from death to a celebration of God's goodness that he provided from the field. But in addition to the historical stuff about Halloween, I want to offer a biblical principle as to whether Christians should observe Halloween the way the culture does in the first place. And then I want to tie this in on how the Lord Jesus is the glorious victor in spiritual warfare between all things Halloween by his resurrection and what this means to us. So a lot here. So let's get going. As I point out some of the historical touch points of Halloween, naturally I did some research. I came across a very good article by a pastor, and he's an author. His name is David Bissett, and he crystallized, in my opinion, some very good factual stuff about Halloween. So I'm going to share a lot of that today. In the pagan world, November 1st was and is known as their New Year's Day. And naturally, they considered October 31st as their New Year's Eve. Now, this is more than just a date on the calendar. It's not an arbitrary thing. For them, it was an extremely important time. Much spiritual stuff was stuffed into this day with an observance called Samhain. It's one of the most powerful things about this day was their view between the seen and the unseen worlds. They had a definite perspective on this. To them, these days brought the world of the dead in closer contact with the world of the living, closer at that time than any other time of the year. They considered the veil between the worlds to be at its thinnest. And in the words of Rowan Moonstone, a professed Wiccan, the living could communicate with their beloved dead. They also took the time on this day and night to practice various forms of divination you know, trying to predict the future and what the spirits would have them, you know, do about what's coming. Now, of course, all this was done under the direction of pagan religious leaders. It is clear that the pagans were laser-focused on death on both October 31st and November 1st. So how did the Church of Jesus Christ intersect this? Well, according to Bissett, it began a long time ago around 607 A.D. And the church's desire to take something of the culture that was evil and try to turn it for good, to reclaim it for Christ. Now, it's kind of like what we've done with Christmas. Christmas is celebrated on a certain day. And what day is that? December 25th. But was Jesus born on December 25th? We don't know. But more than likely, he was born March 20th, according to those who really had done the studies. But December 25th was a pagan holiday. 
The church adopted this day to celebrate the birth of Jesus, and in the words of one writer, as, quote, a holy remedy to Roman extravaganzas in the month of December to kind of reclaim it. Now, in the case of Halloween and Samhain and all that kind of thing, it was the rededication of the ancient pantheon in Rome. Maybe you've seen that building. Maybe you have actually visited it. Bissett writes, originally built by Agrippa for Caesar Augustus and dedicated to the pagan god Jupiter, it was given to the church by the emperor in 607. And after it was spiritually and physically cleansed, the pantheon was dedicated on May 13, 608. And it was dedicated to Mary and the martyrs who had gone on before and was presented for use as a Christian facility. Now, shortly after that dedication came the beginning of a tradition on that very same day. And it was known as All Saints Day because they weren't just remembering the martyrs who went on before them, they were remembering all of their Christian, all the, their brothers and sisters who had gone on to be with the Lord. Now, according to historian Philip Schaff, about 200 years after this, the date of All Saints Day moved. It moved from May 13th to November 1st. And they did that primarily because people were busy between May and October because agricultural and all those kinds of things. They didn't have a whole lot of time really to celebrate these kinds of things. And so that kind of a, a boring intro, let's see how Halloween got started. According to Bissett, All Saints Day was observed with a church service on November 1st, and they called it All Hallows Mass. And hallow, of course, means holy, and it's referred to all the departed saints that had gone on before. Now, this service became a major event in the life of the church, and a lot of prep work was needed to be done to pull it off. And much of it was done on the night before, October 31st. And this, this time became known as All Hallows' Eve. And it was shortened to Halloween. Well, guess what? Today we call it what? Halloween. So now you know how that whole thing got started that way. Well, now, Houston, we have a problem, don't we? Because when were the pagans' most important days? The very same day that the church moved their All Saints Day and Halloween. So whether the church chose these days deliberately to confront the pagan practices or whether it was mere coincidence, the fact remains that both pagans and Christians now focused on death. And over the years, the emphasis on death continued as the hallmark of Halloween. However, a life-giving event happened on October 31st, 1517. A 34-year-old Catholic monk named Martin Luther, he saw a lot of corruption in his beloved Catholic Church. And he made a list of 95 grievances. Now, i got to say this word right. They're called the 95 theses. And he wrote them down, and he nailed them on the, on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And thus began the Protestant Reformation. Now, we all, all owe a debt of gratitude to Martin Luther and how the Lord used him to get the church back to what real salvation is all about, to include what eventually became known as the five solas. 
And the word sola means only. Like, for example, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, faith or grace alone. Solo Christo, Christ alone. And soli Dio Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's what it's all about. And the church, up until that time, it got corrupted. It wasn't about these things. Now, most who are familiar with these 95 theses know that many of these abuses that the church leadership heaped on the people of the day, the, the common folk of the day, had to do with the church getting rich off the backs of the impoverished. And Luther was courageous enough to call out the church leaders. And in Christ, he was bold enough to do that. And the rest is glorious history. And if it wasn't for Martin Luther, humanly speaking, we would not be sitting here today. And so we would think, as Christians, as Protestant believers, that on October 31st, Halloween, that we in the Protestant church would prefer to celebrate what Luther did rather than to follow the culture in order to amass sweet treats. But for the vast majority of us, such is not the case. When's the last time you ever heard of Reformation Day? And actually included in your thoughts. My guess is that very seldom have we ever done that. How many Christians, myself included, view October 31st as a day merely to pass out candy to the kids? How many put up elaborate decorations in their yards to include the grim reaper complete with his Sith and wish all who come to their house happy Halloween? Is there any consideration given to the church's original purpose for October 31st? And like with so many issues, we need the Lord's wisdom on how to handle this. Allow me to raise a biblical principle. Simply this, do all to the glory of God, including observing Halloween. Now, let me borrow a phrase that author and Christian counselor Larry Crabb used in his ministry as he was going through. And he called it, spoil the Egyptians. Now, what does spoil the Egyptians mean? Well, let's go back to when the Passover happened and to when uh, Pharaoh kicked the people out of Egypt finally, let the people go, what did they do? They went around to their neighbors, and they asked for all kinds of stuff. And what did the Egyptians do? They were all too happy to give it over, weren't they? They wanted the Israelites out of their country because of all the stuff that was going on, the destruction that happened. And so what happened with the Israelites? They became very, very wealthy. But what happened to this wealth that they did or had? They were able to build the tabernacle and build all the furniture like the Ark of the Covenant and menorah and all those things. It was with those riches that they used to spoil the Egyptians. And for us, we can do the same. Let's intentionally use the world's things in relation to Halloween as an occasion to turn people's thoughts from death to life. What kinds of Halloween things can you use to the glory of God to make that happen. But if your conscience allows you to, for example, pass out candy, how can you glorify God in doing so? What costumes can you urge your kids or your grandkids to wear to the glory of God? Now, if your conscience doesn't permit you to do this, to participate in a culturally popular or even 
culturally appropriate Halloween observance, what alternatives can you involve yourself with, such as a trunk or treat or even a harvest celebration? You know, the, the possibilities are endless. And even here at Grace United, we could do some of that. We even tried to put some things together this year, but it didn't really pan out. And by the way, what things surrounding Reformation Day can we include on October 31st? What about considering the original purpose for All Saints Day, to remember your godly loved ones who went on to be with the Lord, who had a great impact on your life? How to do that? Well, to quote Bissett again, he said, despite Halloween's unsavory beginnings, there are decidedly Christian ways to celebrate while interweaving two great things, the lives of saints in the past and the life of the blessed in paradise. We remember those. Our brothers and sisters have gone on. It's a day when Christians can remember not only the great believers of the past, but also their loved ones and friends who have served Christ and are now in heaven. Christ has conquered both evil and death. Our Christian response is one of celebration, isn't it? Halloween is also a time for thoughtful evangelism and is a ripe time for communicating Christ's power over death and evil. If you're a Christian, do as your conscience permits. You have nothing to fear except one thing, displeasing the Lord who saved you. He will guard all his sheep as only he can on Halloween and on every day. So now let's turn the corner and see what's good about Halloween. And I think there is actually some good about it. Let me give you two brief points to keep in mind. And both of these points can be used to open doors to begin spiritual conversations. And hopefully, they will turn into gospel presentations. First, Halloween presents to us, up close and personal, the reality of the unseen world. The reality of the unseen world. Graveyards, the Grim Reaper, quote-unquote magic done by witches and their cauldrons and all that kind of stuff, and fear about things that we can't see remind us that this life, the things that we can see, is not all there is. Death is coming for all of us. Would we agree with that? None of us are going to live forever in the way that we are. Death is going to come, and it's coming. May we pray that the Lord would give us opportunities to share the truth with others, that there is a world that we cannot see, and how temporary this life is. Second good thing about Halloween in our culture are the many reminders of the reality of death on display. Now, how big of a doorway does the Lord have to give us to be able to share the gospel with people over with something like this? Now, we can simply point to the Grim Reaper, right? You've got a friend, Grim Reaper, hey, when the Grim Reaper comes for you, where are you going to be? It's easy as that to start the conversation, isn't it? The Lord can give us opportunities if we will only take advantage of it. And Halloween is a perfect example of how we can do this. So now having seen the bad and the good, now let's look at the glorious thing about Halloween. Or should I say, the glorious thing on Sunday falling on October 31st. 
as we share, as it were, Resurrection Sunday with Halloween. Let's begin with the decorations. Now, as I mentioned, you know, all we have to do is look at the yard ornaments, and we see that there are some houses that are elaborately decorated with symbols of death. Now, as parents, we set things up as to harmlessly scare the little ones, don't we? At least that's our attempt. But the fear of death is powerful, isn't it? For kids, for adults, for everybody, the fear of death is powerful. As parents, we do everything we can to keep things safe. Like, for example, firing up the chainsaw only after we've taken the chain off, right? For we as parents, it's about giving the kids an emotional and a sugar rush. That's what it's all about. That's Halloween. But do you realize that we have a symbol of death in the sanctuary every Sunday morning? Every Sunday morning we see it. It's the cross of Christ. And gloriously, who is not on that cross? Jesus. It's empty. Just like his tomb is empty. Hallelujah. And unlike parents desiring to give kids an artificial scare with mere symbols of death, what is the cross? It's an actual instrument of death where the actual Son of God died on it. Every time we look at the cross, it, ought to, it serves as a reminder, or it ought to serve as a reminder, of the most gruesome death any man could ever know. Let me give you a brief reminder of what crucifixion is and what Jesus went through. Crucifixion in the first century was, in the words of one author, one of the most disgraceful and cruel methods of execution and usually reserved only for slaves, foreigners, revolutionaries, and the vilest of criminals. Roman law usually protected Roman citizens from crucifixion, crucifixion, except perhaps in the case of desertion by soldiers. It served two purposes. First, crucifixion served as just punishment for the worst crimes committed in the empire. Second, crucifixion was an extreme and effective deterrent for any would-be crime committer. I think that would be a turn for me, wouldn't you? There would be no disruption in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Crucifixion was typically accomplished in very public places where everybody could see the process, and the process lasted sometimes for days. There were various steps regarding crucifixion. First was the flagellum. We call it the cat of nine tails. This flagellum was leather, and there were some, some leather strips on there, uh, multiple numbers, and each one of them were embedded with, with bits of bone or uh, lead balls, and it was applied with force over and over again to severely weaken the one to be crucified. Now, some didn't even make it to the cross because they died during the flogging. When the person was attached to the cross, the choice was either being tied to it or nailed to it, but the preference of the Roman soldiers was being nailed. Jesus suffered in the worst way possible, by the most painful way possible. But as bad as it was physically, he went through something far worse spiritually. And we're going to talk about that. So what happened on the cross of Jesus? 
in the seen and the unseen world. Many things. I'm going to highlight just four. First, it was a precursor to Messiah's resurrection and therefore the hope of our resurrection. See, Jesus told his men during uh, their last supper together, he said, because I live, you also will live. Second, Christ's death on that instrument of death destroyed the works of the enemy. He was dying, but he was destroying the enemy at the same time. Isn't it amazing? Only God can do that. The writer to the Hebrews tells his readers and us in Hebrews 2.15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what does that mean for us? The Lord set his people free from, wait for it, the fear of death. The fear of death. Not death itself, the fear of death. See, the Lord cursed us with death because of our sin, didn't he? And one day, even death itself is going to be swallowed up with victory. But until that time, we have death with us. And fear is a powerful motivator. And the fear of death is the devil's realm. Because Christ's resurrection guarantees our own resurrection, if we're in Christ, we don't have to fear death, do we? Indeed, what did our Lord tell us in this regard? In Luke 12, 4 to 5, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed, he has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And I cannot tell you strongly enough, and we cannot tell each other strongly enough that the absolute maximum that can happen to God's people in this life is our physical lives can be taken away. And what waits us? as Christians, on the other side of the grave? Resurrection. Living forever in a glorified state. See, our death is a one-way ticket to glorification. Am I talking about we should go out and, and do what the Muslims do? Of course, they're not going to be going there. But, you know, we don't want to go and, and, and actually die a martyr's death because we want to. No, but after we die comes glorification. Because we're in Christ. It's an amazing thing. But how many Christians in our culture today seem to live as if there is no life after death? For example, the world screams loudly that if a person gets COVID, he or she is going to die. Full stop. So, as a result, we must all protect ourselves and one another at all costs. Now, if somebody gets COVID, by any means, whether you're vaxxed or not vaxxed or whatever, is that person automatically going to die? Far from it. Now, do some die because of COVID? Yes, some do. But how about numerous other diseases as well? 
you know, that still is a thing going on, even though the media kind of like puts that off to the side. Or what about violence done to people? That kills people too, right? Or what about accidents or natural disasters or poor choices that we make? Or even in countries that are hostile to the gospel, when a believer stands up and is loud and proud about Jesus. All of these things can serve to cause our death. All of it does. But again, the absolute maximum anybody or anything can do to us as Christ's disciples is to take our physical lives. That's it. No more. They can't do anything else. The truth is, this world is an extremely dangerous place for everybody on this side of the millennial kingdom. The death of Christ takes away our fear of death, but that doesn't mean that foolishly, right? We've got to be wise. We take reasonable precautions. We protect ourselves and others. And we live in a fallen world, don't we? But we dare not succumb to the fear of death to cripple us into rebellious disbelief of the Lord. Think of the 12 spies as we're in Deuteronomy. Those scary spy stories they brought back and they refused to obey the Lord because they got so afraid. We who are in Christ will rise in the resurrection of the righteous. That's a spiritual fact of life. Because I live, Jesus said, you will live also. Do you believe that? Are we living like that? Are we living like we believe it? The third thing to happen on the cross of Jesus is that we now have access to fellowship with God and with one another in this life and the next. After declaring his personal experience with the Lord Jesus in the days of his ministry and in the days of Christ's resurrection after he rose again, John the Apostle joyfully declared this in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amazing passage, amazing statement. But notice, though, the key to experiencing true fellowship is the death of Christ on the cross. Our fellowship is a righteous fellowship. It's a holy fellowship. And when we sin, there is relief. There is a remedy for sin, isn't it? And that's found in 1 John 2, 1 to 3. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, time fails us to even unpack this just a little bit. But the point is that the cross of Jesus opens the way to live the abundant eternal life he offers. And the abundant eternal life he offers is the best life to live, this side of heaven. Would you agree? Would you agree? Yeah, I hope so. The capstone of this truth is found in Paul's words to his mentee, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.10, when he says, Christ abolished death. He abolished it, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amazing statement. And fourth, the death of Christ serves to change the very core of who 
we are. Are you completely satisfied with who you are? (laughs) I see a lot of people say, nope, me neither. But what the gospel does, what Christ's death does for us, it changes us. He changes us. And the new covenant makes this possible. Now, we've heard the promise of Yahweh before here at Grace United. We've said this a number of times, but let's listen to it again. The new covenant, as it were, for the first time. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Now, if you know the history of Jeremiah, you know that Jeremiah was watching at one point his beloved Jerusalem burn to the ground because of their sin. And Jeremiah here is giving a word of promise and a word of encouragement to his people who were suffering under, the, under what was coming. The, the, the Babylonians were going to invade, and some, at some point they were invading. And here's Jeremiah giving this promise Actually, Yahweh, through Jeremiah, giving this promise to his people. And here's what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, if God gives a promise, he will remember something no more. I think we can take that to the bank, can't you? What an astounding thing this is for God to establish such a glorious covenant with his people and to do so in such a way that the Lord's ways would actually become the most precious, most important thing about them. For that is what I will write my law, my Torah on their hearts means. Not only will God's people actually do what God wants them to do, their motivation will be right as well. And it's all for the sake of love. See, remember how he always said, my people will be able to demonstrate their love to me by keeping my commandments. Now that's Old Testament. What about New Testament? Jesus said the exact same thing to his disciples in John 14, 21, didn't he? He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. In short, through the new covenant, covenant, the Lord will work such a work in his people that we will delight to do his will. In a moment, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper as we remember the Lord's promise to establish the new covenant. But it would take Christ's death to accomplish it. Indeed, Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled the promise of the new covenant to his people. All of his people, not just the Jews, but all of his people. A wonderful thing. 
In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he refers to a mystery that he unveiled to his readers, to the church in Ephesus. And this mystery reveals exactly who God's people were and are. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 12 to 20. And we're going to see who these people are. Who are God's people? Ephesians 2, 12 to 20. In a nutshell, they were Jews who believed in Messiah Jesus and Gentiles as well. Now, as we know, if you're not Jew, you're Gentile. There's only two classifications of people in God's world, and this is his world. So let's see this glorious mystery unfold before our eyes as we read these verses, Ephesians 2, 12 to 20. Remember that you, as in Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Jews and Gentiles, one new man, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, the body of Christ through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In short, one new man in Christ. Hallelujah. It really is, though, beyond words what the Lord has done for His people, isn't it? For all of us. His death gives life, and He did it for love. Now you tell me, what's the object of our Lord's love concerning His crucifixion? What's the object? Not us. This is Father. His Father. Though he did love us, yes, absolutely. The supreme object of affection of the Lord Jesus was his Father. And how we need to remember this. Jesus' death came by way of crucifixion. And as horrific as his physical death was, what happened to Jesus spiritually was so much worse. Think Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Co-equal co-eternal, members of the Godhead. They were always in fellowship, always together. There was absolutely no division at all until Jesus was nailed to the cross. Until Jesus felt the weight of sin on his shoulder and upon his heart. Peter told us that Jesus actually was made sin for us. He became sin for us. And for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus experienced what it was like to be separated from his Father in fellowship. There's no way 
that we could take this in. There's no way we could understand his anguish. No way we can even scratch the surface of the depth of this. And as he cried out, as best he could, mostly dead on the cross, on that cursed thing, and barely able to breathe, he cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was absolutely, totally alone. There was no one for him at that moment. He had no one. This is the most sublime, deepest moment in human history. And Jesus did this for love for his father. In John 14, 30 and 31, Jesus said this to his disciples. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Again, he loved us. How he loved us. But the reason he went to the cross was to show the world that he loved the Father. And the Lord Jesus knew he was going to the cross one day. He knew it was going to happen even before he stepped out of eternity into time. He knew it. And how do we know this? Another one of the most amazing passages that stops all mouths. We read these words in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus went to the cross to show the world he loved the Father. God loved the world by giving us his Son to be our substitute for our sin. Our sin was so heinous It took the the death of Christ on the cross to pay for it. Such amazing love the Father displayed, or the Son displayed to the Father, and such hatred for sin and sinners, and such love for sinners, both converge on the cross of Christ. Sin is a huge deal for God. And in the cross of Christ, He takes care of it. He did it because of love. Christ did all of that out of love for the Father. Death is a result of our rebellion, and the enemy uses the fear of death to force people to submit to his will. But the way of Jesus is the way of love. Love that was willing to have his fellowship with his Father broken on our behalf. See, it was love, not of the sentimental kind, but of the costly kind that Christ showed on the cross. And so this morning, we observe the unspeakable love the Son of God showed His Father. We celebrate Christ's fulfillment of the new covenant written in His blood so that the Torah of God would be written on our hearts. And just as Jesus' greatest delight was in knowing and doing the Father's will, So our greatest delight is to know 
and to do the Father's will. Halloween glorifies death. And on this day especially, we glorify the one who overcame death, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with those thoughts in mind, let's prepare to observe, to remember in memorial what the Lord Jesus has done for us as he showed love to the Father by giving himself for us. Amazing thing, isn't it? That he would do that for you, do that for me. And you know, we weren't asked to be born. Were we? We were born with a simple nature. But neither did the Lord ask if we wanted to be saved. He just did it. Not that universal salvation is true. But he offered himself and then gave us the opportunity. He didn't say, well, would you like me to die for you? He didn't do that. But he loved the Father. And he gave himself in obedience to the Father's will. And so as we go and we remember what he's done for us, let's remember that he's done it for us, for me, for you. So I'm going to ask my brother Greg to come. And we're going to bless, uh, pray a blessing over the elements and then pass the elements out. Again, as we know, this is not Grace United's table. This is the Lord's table. And if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, Feel free to participate of the elements. But if you, as a Christian, are cherishing sin in your heart, you're not willing to give it up, I'm going to ask that you allow the elements to pass by. But during this time, maybe you can ask the Lord, say, Lord, help me to be right with you. Lord, show my heart to me so I may confess my sin. Scripture tells us, this is a great promise, isn't it? It says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we do this, if you are clean before the Lord as best as you know how, you've asked the Lord to show you and you're clean before him, then participate. Please, we ask you to do that. Brother Greg. Pray together our corporate prayer and uh, let's do it old school. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.